I pulled into the carport at the New Orleans house and parked the car and got out and I noticed at the base of the deck there was something green growing and still see it in my mind's eye and it was the only green thing in my world at that point in time because what you also have to realize is that a storm like Hurricane Katrina strips all the leaves off the trees so the trees that hadn't been killed by the floodwaters were bare. There was practically no green anywhere. And yet here was this little piece of green out in my yard. And I kind of thought it was a message from my father because he was a gardener. And the plant thrived. It was amazing. And my friends who came to visit from Baton Rouge, they looked at it and they said, oh, this is a squash plant. And in Native American spirituality, the squash stands for fertility and abundance. And they said, you should nurture this plant because if it thrives, then you will as well. Hi, I'm Jen Dean, and this is The Gardenia Project, a podcast and portrait series that I created to help women shine a light on the stories of our lives that help shape who we are today. Stories that often we want to hide or forget, or maybe it's a story that happened to us. Often I talk to women who are able to look back many years after an event has happened, and they're only now able to see and learn from what occurred and how they handled it. Today's story is one of those. We come on a journey with Mary as she tells us how she learned to start over and what it means to trust yourself and the decisions you make, decisions that may have been forced upon you. Culturally, and also especially the older generation of women, we're often taught to rely, sometimes almost completely, on others. And most of the time, that meant relying on the men in their lives to make the choices and the decisions. Today, we'll look at a story that asks, what does it look like to have all that change very suddenly? Before I moved to Maine, 14 years ago, in fact, I lived in New Orleans, Louisiana, where I had been living for 25 years um, with my husband and my daughter. My daughter had just graduated from college. My husband and I had been married for 34 years, but we'd been partners forever. We were high school sweethearts, so he was like the only person, only man that I'd ever been deeply emotionally attached to. Mary told me a little bit more about David. At the time of the story, he was a law professor at Tulane University. He specialized in First Amendment law and voting rights. He handled cases for the ACLU and special projects for the city council. He was an untiring advocate for the disenfranchised, minorities, women, and the differently abled. She said he was incredibly smart. He held both a BA and a law degree from Columbia University, as well as a graduate degree from Oxford University in England. He loved to travel, and he often worked abroad. He loved to sail, he loved all things tropical, and he really loved his home of New Orleans, jazz, seafood, and warm weather. Obviously, he was a devoted father, and at this point, in time, they had been in love for almost 40 years. I was really a very lucky person. I, um, I had a very stable, solid life. I had uh, a reasonable level of affluence. My husband was a professional. I had a fulfilling life with my church community and my women's circle. My daughter had just graduated college. We did have aging parents, but 
you know, we were of an age to have aging parents. Summer 2005 started with my mother-in-law having a fall and breaking her hip. She was 95, so that was a big deal. It did not take her life, which I kind of thought it would, but she survived. About a month after that, my own mother had a heart attack and died. Again, 87, so not unexpected, but still, it's always a shock when you're close to a parent to lose them, even if you know it's coming. So that was in July. In August, Hurricane Katrina came roaring into New Orleans. We evacuated. You know, we didn't know what was coming, but we knew that whatever happened, we wouldn't have electricity, so we needed to be someplace where we could survive the heat. And then we moved down to Pensacola Beach where we had a condominium because by then we knew that the city had flooded and that no one was allowed back in. In case any of you don't know or you need a reminder, Hurricane Katrina was the costliest storm in U.S. history. It completely devastated the city and the surrounding areas. The cost was an $108 billion in property damage. There were also an estimated 1,200 people that died. About a third of those drowned, and almost half were exposed to disease as a direct result of the storm. 400,000 people were permanently displaced, and the population of New Orleans fell by more than half in the year after Katrina. Many people fled and just never returned. We went to Pensacola Beach to live until we could go back and even see what had happened. Living in Pensacola Beach was kind of strange because that area had been devastated by a hurricane just a year earlier. So our whole condominium complex was not in great shape, but it had electricity and that meant air conditioning and, you know, we were happy to be someplace that was ours and not staying with friends for long periods of time. We were waiting every week to get news from New Orleans, can you go back, can you go back? And we knew we wouldn't go back to live immediately. It would be a question of going back to assess damage and then coming back to Pensacola until we knew what was what. My husband, David, went out to swim around about 4 o'clock. He went down to the beach to swim. There were red flags flying all over the beach because Hurricane Rita was now in the Gulf of Mexico but swimming was the only exercise he was getting at that point, and he was overly confident in his ability to handle rough water. He was taking an unusually long time to come back. I was getting ready to go look for him when the police came to my door and asked me if, um, if my husband was in and various questions, and I knew as soon as I saw them what had happened. I knew the questions were just their roundabout way of making sure they were at the right house. He drowned in the waters of the Gulf of Mexico. Mary is completely devastated, but she does have the foresight to give her daughter a gift. She calls a friend who 
who lives near her daughter and has the friend go find her daughter so she doesn't have to hear of her father's death over the phone. Mary decides not to go home right away to New Orleans since everything there is something she associates with her husband. She knows her life will never be the same. Then, about six weeks later, as she's coping with the loss of her home and her husband, her father dies. I was actually able to be with him when he passed. Um, it was clear to me then how worried he was about me because his first question to me was what had happened to David. And he really wanted to know because, of course, I had known since David since high school, and so my parents had as well, you know. There was a lifelong connection there. And he just really, really wanted to know. And I think once I told him and I assured him that I would be okay, that he kind of was able to relax and let go into his own death. So in a four-month period from mid-July to mid-November, I lost the town I had lived in for 25 years, both of my parents, and my husband of 33 years. And I was trying hard not to worry about what I was going to do next, how I was going to survive. My daughter and I stayed at the condo in Pensacola until we heard we could go back to the city and we felt up to doing it. And we went back, we checked out the house, which the surrounding property, the cars, the air conditioning systems, those things were flooded out. Ironically enough, the house was not flooded. It was raised off the ground three feet and so we escaped that and we walked into the house and it looked just like it had when we left. And my daughter and I, it was just like, how could the house that we had lived in so happily, the three of us, not reflect the, the trauma that we had had? You know, it was like we had both been dealt a massive body blow, and I didn't know how to process that the house was okay. It just seemed like the house should also be destroyed. There was no electricity when we first went back, but by mid-October, there was electricity. And once there was electricity, I moved back to New Orleans because I couldn't bear to be where every day I was looking at the Gulf of Mexico where he had drowned. It was just too hard. And so I moved into the New Orleans house by myself for the first time I'd ever been there that long by myself and just started trying to make it through each day. Mostly I lived in my room. I ate junk food. I watched old videotapes. Um, cable came back sometime during the first month I was back. And um, every night I stayed up watching television until I couldn't keep my eyes open anymore because it was easier to go to bed when I was so tired that I knew I would fall asleep. So I became one of these people that woke up at noon and then didn't go to bed until 3 or 4 in the morning. The city was just weird. You know, none of the things that happen when people die happened to us because we didn't have any neighbors. 
we didn't have any neighbors on our street to bring us food or friends from the church to come and call and see how you are because everyone was either somewhere else or dealing with their own deeply disturbing crisis. You know, I know people who lost everything and that's a different kind of trauma, but I, I didn't have anyone there to hold my hand, give me support. I didn't really want to be talking with people either. I was, I won't say I was happy inside my own head, but I didn't know even how to process what had happened to me, to put it into language. And it's not like there were therapists in New Orleans that we could be seeing there. You know, there was no medical care at all. I had to go back to Pensacola to see the doctor there to get refills on my antidepressants. Although I did feel they should be putting it in the water supply that everyone needed it at that point. And the city just reflected my mood. It was dark, there weren't street lights were out, so there was no illumination on a lot of places, and it was dirty because the whole city had been flooded, and it was not like it was flooding with bath water. It was, you know, nasty water with marks on all of the buildings where the water level had been. So it was it was sort of a visual representation of my very dark mood. And Sometimes I would just go out and drive around and look at some of the destruction because it was a different focus for my pain, that it wasn't personal, but it was citywide. And now, a message from our sponsors. Kate Bathurst Coaching helps mission-driven women reclaim their intuition and reconnect to themselves so that they can make a difference in the world and feel fully alive while doing so. She supports her clients to step boldly into the next phase of their life, work, and growth with clarity, confidence, and grace that come with making decisions from a place of deep connection. Now, while she wrote that for me to tell you, I will say that I have personally worked with Kate, and those words are so true. We've been working together for about a year, and she has profoundly shifted the way I move in the world and in my business. It's really surprising to me to see the effect of working with her has had. She helped me quickly launch my new course for my business by helping me get through some really big blocks that I had. And she helped me reach some goals exponentially faster than I have been able to do on my own. So if the next chapter of your life is calling and you want to bring in the most vibrant and purposeful self to it, but you're not sure where to start, please call Kate. I'll have the link on the website and blog um, and the Podbean app, but you can find her at her name, Kate, K-A-T-E, Bathras, B-A-T-H-R-A-S, coaching.com. I am so excited to announce that my friend Jen's book, Empathic Mastery, is going to be able to help people access amazing wisdom. She not only gets what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, but she uses the book to explain the hows and whys in a way that makes sense and it's really fun to read. I've had a sneak peek and you don't wanna miss it. She shares her step-by-step system that will teach you how to recognize what's yours and what isn't, release the stuff that doesn't serve you and also protect yourself from absorbing other people's negativity and act in new ways that support an awesome life. Go grab your copy by visiting empathicmasterybook.com. You'll be so glad you did. And now, back to our program. Even though Mary's dealing with a very personal, deep grief, as well as the darkness that has engulfed the entire area she lives in, 
She also knows that she has to move forward. And so at some point, she starts making slow movement, and that means she has to make choices, decisions about the future. But she's also starting from the beginning. These kinds of decisions, she's never had to make before now. By the time my father died, I had now lost every person in my life that had been part of my decision-making process since childhood, because David and I had been high school sweethearts. And now I was faced with major decisions all the time to make, and I had to make them on my own. I had to figure that out. But I just, I learned to breathe and to to trust myself, to say, you know, you, you can do this. You do have the intelligence, you have the intuition, you have the, um, the will to make this choice. And I just tried to invoke that at every time I had to make a choice. But I really learned to trust myself. And I don't know that I ever would have done that if I hadn't, this hadn't happened to me, that, um, to make decisions and to be confident in them and also to understand that not every decision you make is going to be 100% the best possible option, but that doesn't mean it's a bad decision. It just means that it wasn't the optimum decision. And I could make a lot of decisions that were not optimum, but that still turned out fine. There's lots of range between a bad decision and a good decision and you don't always have to be functioning at 100% good you can function at 90% good and that's probably good enough for most of what you do and so I would say that for a while I was functioning in the sort of 80 to 90% range of making decisions they weren't all perfect all the time but they um, they got me through what I needed to get through you know step by step day by day settle this insurance claim deal with this lawyer. Um, and gradually, I just felt that I got better at it. And I think that by watching me have to do that, it helped my daughter to learn to trust her own decisions as well. And I think it's hard for women to trust themselves in major decisions because we're really trained, certainly women of my generation, are trained to have that be something that the husband does or the father does. Um, and I always knew I was smart, but I just never had to rely on it as entirely as I now did. And it was probably ultimately a really good thing for me because I'm now to the point where I rarely second-guess decisions. Mary has faced down some really hard choices, and she slowly learned to trust herself. And even though she's still in grief and struggling every single day, one day she notices something pretty amazing. I pulled into the carport at the New Orleans house and parked the car and got out and I noticed at the base of the deck there was something green growing and still see it in my mind's eye and it was the only green thing in my world at that point in time because what you also have to realize is that a storm like Hurricane Katrina strips all the leaves off the trees. So the trees that hadn't been killed by the floodwaters were bare. There was practically no green anywhere. And yet here was this little piece of green out in my yard. And I kind of thought it was 
a message from my father because he was a gardener. And my friends who came to visit from Baton Rouge, they looked at it and they said, oh, this is a squash plant. And in Native American spirituality, the squash stands for fertility and abundance. And they said, you should nurture this plant because if it thrives, then you will as well. And so I started paying attention to it. And the plant thrived. It was amazing. The highlight of my day every day was to go outside in the morning and see what the squash plant was doing. And it just kept getting bigger and bigger. It had leaves that were as big as my hand. And then it started producing flowers. And it flowered all through the winter season and gorgeous, gorgeous gold flowers. They were so pretty. I'd never seen anything like it. And it really, it gave me the lesson that if this could survive in the ruins and detritus of what Hurricane Katrina had left behind, something this beautiful could grow, that maybe I could start growing as well. And um, I, I kept nurturing it until the hot weather came. And then once it got extremely hot and humid, I don't think squash is like that kind of weather, it started to die. But I didn't panic because I knew that by then the energy that it had brought to the table was planted in me. And I was able to start thinking about, well, what was I going to do next? And um, practically the first decision I made was that I was going to leave New Orleans. The squash plant became a symbol for her life. That, really, you can grow in any soil. She began to think about her own life. She asked herself what she really wanted. And she realized that both of the places that she had homes were filled with ghosts and grief. And it was time to make a change, a big one. She also had another source of hope in a friend that she had made previously. I've been, been going for years to a spiritual retreat every summer and knew a man that lived in Maine through that retreat. And about a year after my husband died, when I went back to that retreat, I met this man again, as I had done the last couple of years, and we were very close friends. We had done a lot of spiritual work together, and we trusted each other. And um, the nature of our relationship began shifting, and it became clear that the trust that we had built over three years of seeing each other for one week every summer which is not a lot, but it was enough to, for me to know that I could trust him. And we started exploring the possibility of a life together. And since he lived in Maine, I was grateful to have an opportunity to move to a part of the world I had never been, and I'd never been to Maine. He's really lovely up here. And he is one of the kindest, most caring men I've ever known. And I was so lucky to have someone like that who was willing to open his life to me and create a life together. And so Mary went from a slow, steady walk through grief to seeing that there was still so much more to her life. She had the choice to make a new start, a new place to plant herself and her life where she could start to grow again. If you could sum up what you would say to somebody who is going through 
any kind of traumatic loss, what would you say to them? It's okay to be sad. It's okay to cry. It's okay to feel like the bottom has fallen out of your world. And you need to give yourself permission to feel those things and not feel strong all the time. Because if you don't, when you need to be, be strong, your resources will fail because you haven't given yourself time to mourn. So that's the first thing I would say. And the second thing I would say is, you know more than you think you do. You know more than you think you do. You, you have intelligence. Your intuition is um, stronger than you give it credit for. What you most need to learn at that point is to listen to it, to still all the other voices in your head that are saying, you should do this, you should do that, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, and make all of them go away and be quiet. And then listen to what comes up from deep inside yourself. And that is the voice of your truth. And your truth is always your best guide. But it's often hard to find with all of the competing advice that you'll be getting. So allow yourself plenty of time to be in silence, which is sometimes scary for people, but it's the only way to really let intuition come forward. I'm just going to repeat one thing that Mary said in case you missed it. What you most need to learn to listen to is your intuition. That is the voice of your truth. When I thought that the happiest times of my life were over, that I would never again have that kind of stability and connection with another soul and contentment, you know, and I had kind of just said, okay, well, I'll find another life, but it won't include that. It won't be the same. And I'm not saying that what I live now is the same because it's very different in many ways. But it fulfills me and satisfies me and it makes me happy when I never thought I would get that again. And it was intuition that led me to this. If I had relied totally on my rational mind, I would have found a thousand obstacles. But I listened to my intuition and I let the obstacles just become challenges I could overcome. Isn't this just the most beautiful lesson or reminder that we could get at the beginning of the new year and the new decade? Funny story, before I began the work of narrating this podcast, I chose my word of the year for 2020. For the last few years, I choose a word and then I try and learn from the lessons that that word can teach me throughout the year. I had thought about many words that had impact and felt big. I was going over them in my mind and none of them felt right. I just wasn't feeling them. And then all of a sudden, this little voice, imagine that, told me that my word for the year was intuition. And this story is the perfect reminder of that. That listening to our gut and our feelings and learning to trust ourselves to do the next right thing is really powerful. I think the more we tune in and listen, the brighter our lives can shine. Mary sure proved that. And that's the end of the first episode of the new year. I got my stat updates from Podbean where I host this podcast. And last year, 
you downloaded over 2,000 times. So thank all of you out there who are listening and thank you who send me messages and tell me how much you enjoy the stories and appreciate what I'm doing. That makes it all worthwhile. Stephanie and I would love it if you would give us a little bit of financial support. This podcast is not inexpensive to produce, and there's a couple ways to do that. You can sponsor a podcast by um, sending us an email, jen at jendeanphoto.com, or you can go right to that website, www.jendeanphoto.com, and check out the Gardenia Project. There's a bunch of information over there. You can send your stories my way and be considered to be a guest on the podcast. And also on Patreon, which is a really cool website that helps gather money for all kinds of artists. It is P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com. You can go over there and subscribe monthly to buy us a virtual cup of coffee, as it were. Just a couple dollars a month would help us greatly. We have a huge thank you to Keith Keniff of Unseen Music for the theme music, as always. And we look forward to hearing from you and seeing you again. Seeing, hearing, I always mess that up. It feels like I see you. You can hear me. Something like that. It's messy, but it's beautiful, as most of life is. All right. Peace out.